because I believe science might offer an answer to the curse of the Bambino. Why someone took so long to hire that guy is beyond me. Anybody who's not tearing their team down right now and rebuilding it using your model, they're dinosaurs. One of the great things about money is it, it buys a lot of things. One of which is the luxury to disregard what baseball likes, doesn't like, what baseball thinks, doesn't think. It's a threatening, not just a way of doing business, but in their minds, a threatening game. How can you not be romantic about baseball? All right, welcome to another Baseball Ops podcast. Uh, today, special guest, another coach in the realm of, we could say, functional movement. We could also say biomechanics. I'm fired up to speak with... Chuck Wolf today. How, how's it going, Chuck? Brent, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Um, and and looking forward to having you on. I know Chris uh, highly recommended you, sent me your book, so I'm, I'm really fired up to go through your methods. Um, and, and, you know, I, I hate doing or going into, you know, t- basically defining people's bios or resumes because uh, typically we do, uh, you know, the person – does a better job of introducing that, covering everything. So why don't you tell them about, or everyone listening, about yourself, who you are, your expertise, and everything before we get started. Well, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you on your on your podcast. You do a very nice job with uh, the work you've you've done in the past, and thank to you. be with you now is a privilege. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm a practicing exercise physiologist for the last 39 years, and um, I have a master's degree in exercise physiology and a fellowship in biomechanics. I've uh, been, uh, as I say, practicing for 39 years. And before this career, I, I played pro ball way back in the day. And it almost seems like the day when they were still leaving the gloves out on the field and both teams shared the same gloves. But uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to blend my two passions, one being baseball and two uh, understanding movement and and applying biomechanics and blend them together to to work with ball players um, who have had performance issues or have had injury issues. Uh, let it be if it's been a, a ankle, knee, hip, back, shoulder, elbow problem. Uh, that's part of my practice. The rest of my practice is injury evaluation and gait and motion analysis. Uh, on people who who are in not necessarily athletes, even though at some point we're all athletes in some degree, in some way, shape, or form. So uh, I just don't work with athletes. I work with grandma and grandpa to the everyday working woman and man and um, people who have injuries that they've gone through rehab and rehab got them to a certain point, but they're still having certain issues. And that's when they come to me for a gait motion analysis and another set of eyes to look strategically at how they're moving through integrated fashion from the ground up and from the top down. So I'm fortunate to be able to do this for a while. Awesome. So, you know, biomechanics is still feels like a new field. What, what brought you into uh, or that bringing in that emphasis of biomechanics into your practice? Well, early in my career, I was I was doing a lot in cardiac rehab and cardiovascular uh, and lifestyle related illnesses and, and disease such as coronary artery disease, hypertension, diabetes, uh, and so on. And 
as important as that is, I saw at least the trend in the industry is more orthopedic and and, and uh, injury issues and overuse issues. Um, so it was, it was that time when I started looking at at methods of training. Um, and when you look way back in the day, maybe it's the inability to keep records like we do now and look at statistics like we do now, but primary form of exercise was calisthenics and, and body weight movements and um, free weights and, and medicine balls, uh, Indian clubs, not necessarily selectorized equipment that worked in one plane of motion and that concentrated on the concentric or the shortening phase of and the propulsion phase of muscle function. So it was interesting that there were less reported injuries back in the earlier days than there are now. And then as we emerge even further with further technology and uh, different method methodologies of training, we've gone from the calisthenic triplane movements to more isolated controlled movements. In fact, I remember way back in the day, the very first facility I worked on, worked in, every member had to go through an orientation. And it was an orientation on circuit training equipment, uh, selectorized equipment, because it was deemed safer back then, which in fact, it, I'm not going to say it was or wasn't, but it really isn't how we move. So when I saw how those methods were were starting to occur and even some of the training methods that were being used with athletes, I thought to myself 39 years ago, well, as an athlete, I know I didn't train this way, uh, but this is what's come emerging. So this must be the way to go. Um, I always had this tendency for triplane integrated movements because I've seen the more athletic. However, with the strength training going on and emerging back then and selectorized equipment and then uh, free weight movements, I thought, okay, we'll be able to start working and training with that. But that's when I started to see more injuries and I just felt back at that time, it doesn't feel sport-like. It doesn't feel like natural movements. And that's not to condemn the fact that these there, are, there is a place for these modalities and this type of equipment, but it just didn't feel sport-like. Uh, I definitely saw athletes and myself getting bigger and stronger, but I also saw a lack of mobility occur uh, with with the people I worked with, not just the athlete, but also people who are not performing in sports at that point. Uh, so there had to be a hybrid somewhere in between there. The, you could work in three planes of motion. You could have more integrated movement, ground-based reaction movements, combined with strength training. And that's where the hybrid started to occur within me. And then I started studying um, movement from the ground up. Uh, started going to seminars, started reading intensely and looking at some of the old studies, not necessarily the, the new research, but some of the old research that was on uh, looking at EMG studies that was done back in the 40s and 50s and then start extrapolating how that's applying to just movement today. Because guess what, Brent? Um, we move the same now as cave woman, cave man did way back when. And it was just understanding the integrated movement patterns and how do we apply this performance today. Yeah, I mean, I think you define the history of 
the strength and conditioning or exercise science pretty well. You know, bodybuilding is really what popularized uh, weightlifting in this country. And then it kind of evolved. I remember the era of, I mean, when you were talking about things becoming more isolated, even isometric, I guess that was kind of like the Nautilus movement. Were you, were you defining when that became popular, when machines yeah, became more popular? Commonly referred to as you know machines, and then became selectorized equipment. Uh, Nautilus definitely became uh, the foremost recognized name in the business back then. Um, um, but today, now it's become CrossFit. <laughs> so it's like it's swung completely the other way. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. You know, CrossFit. If you look at CrossFit, CrossFit really is. It's again combining some powerlifting techniques that's utilizing free weights, but CrossFit uses a lot of ropes, a lot of body weight movements, chin ups, push ups, and again, yeah, it uses it uses free weight equipment, but it uses tires, it uses sleds, and these are things that were way back in the no, I get it, but it's in but the thirties and forties, right? Exactly, so, but it's like we we've completely swung away from the bodybuilding, the sculpting. Uh, you know, approach of strength and conditioning to the athlete and, and even, you know, on, on the, maybe the more PT side, the functional aspects of the body, right? Um, you know, I, I use the term of um, tools in a toolbox. And when we look at isolation, as we talked about just a moment ago, way back in the days of calisthenics and, and working in three planes of motion, then things became more isolated. We saw limitations in both, and then we swung back into what's termed whatever fun, you know, functional. Well, yeah, whatever, but we're still kind of in that – we're back in that three planes of movement approach, right? Exactly, right. and that's how the body moves. But that's not to say throw away the isolated stuff because yeah. I use isolated movements for people who have been sedentary, people who have had injury – uh, people who who just don't have the kinesthetic awareness of how their bodies really yeah. move in all three planes of motion. So let's get to isolation first, strengthen that weakest link in the chain, but yet integrate it into, in, into a regressive to a progressive approach. Let's take a more complex movement and simplify it and then progress the person let it be if it's if it's grandma, grandpa, or somebody who's rehabbing from an injury, or an athlete, and then progress them to the more complex movement patterns. What I see yeah. is a lot of coaches, a lot of trainers, even some physios. Physios not as much, but as coaches and trainers, but they want to get the the person. In this case, we'll talk athlete. They want to get the athlete to doing that squat or doing that explosive movement quickly. But they're missing a lot of lot of essential foundational remedial movements that have to take place to allow that complex movement to be more efficient. And that's where that's what really bothers me because we're taking people into zones that they're not ready for yet. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're making a great point. I mean, but you know, it's it it is a tough thing i think it isn't it's interesting it's fun to hear everybody's approach i mean i to be honest like those who are probably arguing and, and they were probably be more coaches maybe even more skilled coaches 
Um, I don't think they even find much use for those simple movements. They they want to sports specificity is all they want to talk about, right? And so that that's the challenge here. It's like when you get with movement specialists, they really want to define the basic movements and, and perfect those before you become complex. But that that's a hard thing to transfer like to a skills coach who doesn't really have that background, that understanding, and he just wants to get into the specificity. He really wants to simplify the skill. And sometimes you need to even go past that. So it's this, it's this challenge, and especially in baseball, you have this. And that's why I, I was always, when, when I got to work inside some organizations, I was like, hey, we just need to get everybody at the table, right? Like, we got to get everybody sitting down talking together. Because if not, we're all pulling the athlete in so many different ways, don't you think? Well, you're hitting on something that's very sensitive to me because uh, some of the organizations that I've worked with uh, from the major league level down to the minor league level, but especially at the major league level, these, the sports medicine team doesn't talk to the right. strength and conditioning team. Uh, and even there's one incident in particular, I've heard a couple of players from this ball clubs say that the sports medicine team told the players not to work with the strength and conditioning team. Exactly. That's just is, a huge, problem. <laughs> huge disconnect. And I just find it very interesting that those two years in particular, there was a very high incidence of injury. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to talk because there's definitely a continuum between between the sports medicine side and rehab and the sports performance side. And if they don't talk, and I don't care who it is, if they don't talk, it's one thing. But if they don't understand movement, they're doing a huge disservice not only to the ball player but to the organization. And and that's the issue. It it amazes me how many how many people in professional sports, how many. Uh, strength and conditioning and sports medicine people in professional sports of any sport, but here we're talking baseball, obviously, don't understand movement. Don't get it whatsoever. I think, you know, I think it all went wrong when we tried to specialize um, in our practices because once we specialized, it was really no longer about helping the athletes anymore. It was just about proving your methods, which I I accept. I understand people want to show that they really have a good understanding or they want to innovate. But it gets too, it separates too much from the purpose here, which is to really help the athlete. Don't you think if we specialize too much, we've got to be careful because um, we can start to, we're more disrupting uh, the athlete than really supporting the athlete? I don't know. What do you think? Well, do you mean specialize in that particular sport? Yeah, well, specializing in, you know, in your expertise in helping the athlete. So, like, you'll have, you know, you'll have a, uh, a, a trainer looking more from, uh, let's say, a, a, a typical P- PT's a, a methods or how they're trained or their methodology. And then you'll have, say, you know, on my end, like I, I'm a USA weightlifting or a USA Olympic lifting coach. So I, I can look at it purely at like an Olympic lifting coach. And, and then if what happens is there's so, you know, there, those don't really overlap that well. And then we're fighting each other for to really show where our methods are defined. And then once, like I said, then it starts to, it doesn't really help the athlete at that point. You're hitting on something where I think in all disciplines, we need to have an open mind. 
Right. And I don't care what it is. Let's talk about Olympic lifting for just a moment. There still has to be certain foundations. There has to be certain principles and concepts of movement that take place. Let it be if it's an Olympic sport or Olympic lifting, I should say, or any other sport or any other activity of daily living. There are certain foundational truths that have been there since the day we walked upright right. that must take place to make an activity successful. I, or call, at least them, I call them the core principles. I call them core principles, and you're right. They need to be acknowledged through all um, through all facets of player development, right? No, no question. No matter what sport, but especially in rotational sports, or I should say rotational movements such as pitching, which is what you specialize in in your podcast and in your programs. Right. Is there has to be these foundational movement patterns. And the way I look at it is what I call the big movement rocks. It's foot and ankle complex, the hips and thoracic spine. You better have the mobility in all three of those regions. Otherwise, that's where we start to see Breakdown. overuse injuries and injuries of the low back, number one, the knee, number two, the shoulder, number three, cervical spine, number four. Right. I've seen it for 39 years. Right. And to have a physio or to have a strength and conditioning coach just be – zeroed in in their own discipline without understanding movement, which is the universal code for, or I should say the universal language for us to be able to communicate with each other, who gets lost through all this? The athlete. Right. So, you know, the attacks that I go through, because, you know, when you define, when you, when you say you're an expert and you give your methods, people think you're it's just black or white. Like, come on. I mean, there's shades of gray here. I mean, I don't, address everyone with an Olympic mindset, Olympic lifting mindset. I go into, you know, I, I look at them, I go, you know, yeah, we might start on technique with them, but they're really not going to be good at Olympic lifting for another year because there's these core principles they're just failing at. But I just don't like those out there that don't like, say, Olympic lifting. And then they want to focus on every reason we shouldn't do it as opposed to how it could actually be used. I think it can be, I think it can be used. There's no question. I think it can be used. Uh, the question is twofold in my view. One is what are the limitations of the athlete and how do you modify, uh, or make whatever movement that is more remedial first to get the proper movement in all three planes of motion in the big movement rocks. Because all muscles, all joints in the body work in three planes of motion, and the majority of books don't tell us that. There's one that does, but the majority of them don't. So when we, when we look at movement, that, that movement professional or that physio or the strength and conditioning specialist better understand that, okay, well, the ankle has to dorsiflex, that's fine, but you better know that the foot better go through forefoot abduction and the tibia internally rotate and the calcaneus, the heel better evert. That's what makes up pronation or what we commonly call going through that flat foot phase. Mm -hmm. That is a necessary mechanism. Mm -hmm. What we need to understand then is are we staying too long in that phase, in that zone, or are we not staying in there enough? And that's where we start seeing breakdown of tissue and injuries that can possibly occur. And, and that's that methodology or that approach can extremely, I mean, would work well with a strength coach, 
you know, that's specific to a certain method of strength and, and conditioning. The point is, is like, I can see how all this works together. And that's the problem here. We're, th we want to fight and push between the methods, but actually they can come together. Yeah. There's certain methods that can't, uh, but uh, because it's contraindicated, but there, there's more, I think there's a lot out there that could be brought together. That's not being brought together just because everyone thinks we have to be defining these lines and keeping things separate. Well, when you say contraindicated, I don't believe that there is a contraindication generally across the board. Now, what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is like if you had a – I wouldn't want a cross-country coach advising an Olympic lifter. I, I think totally that, agree with that. Because right? right? there are two opposite ends of the spectrum. But, but And I agree with you 100% on that, Brent. My point being is when I say contraindication across the board, I'm looking at and, – and I know you are too. You're looking at each athlete individually. I can have three or four different athletes – even of different sports going at the same time, that it looks like they're doing relatively the same movement, but it's modified or it's it's uh, tweaked a little bit based upon the limitations, compensations, and the idiosyncrasies of that individual athlete. So if I see that an athlete may have a uh, limitation in in sub their subtalar joint and their and their ability to evert the foot. I have another athlete who has a bit of inability to adduct the hip, and I've got somebody who has an inability to really keep the spine, the thoracic spine, stable and more erect during a certain movement. They're all interrelated. So I'm going to modify that particular movement pattern where I can impact what not only goes on at the foot and ankle complex, but then will we'll affect the hip and what will affect the thoracic spine. And what's interesting, they're not that much different, it's just the emphasis of the timing that's gonna affect each of those regions. Because you better have certain movements going on at the foot and ankle to allow the hip to move in all three planes of motion at a particular time, to allow the thoracic spine to do what it needs to do, otherwise we're risking an injury to the low back or the knee, especially in particular. Yeah, and I think this is um, great, I mean this is, the this is like incredibly valuable. So I just, I'm visualizing in the sport of Olympic lifting because it's easier. Because if I, if I apply this to pitching, I'm going to lose half the people here. And, and let's say in the sport of Olympic lifting, if I had a skill coach teaching the, say, the, the clean and jerk technique, okay. and, and, and he's in a place of performance enhancement, like this kid's been doing it for a little while, and he really wants to get this guy, obviously, to a competitive level to where he can go and compete. And but this kid is failing, say his upper his upper back keeps failing on his catch phase and he keeps dropping or, you know, he he doesn't get his 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 legs want to keep going valgus. He keeps he loses stability. And that and that skills coach is trying to coach him through technique. You're a perfect expert at that point to come in and say, well, look, he's failing because of the, you know, the, the position of the foot. And, and we need to we need to do some simple uh, movements to help build that foundation and, and and all this is great because we you start working on that and this kid starts getting more functional be able to do the, these things better that the coach is trying to technically get him to understand and, and implement and th that's how this all should work even into pitching we can go into pitching with the pitching coach and this is how this whole system should work all these coaches should be there working together within 
yeah, their specialty, but understanding that everyone is a part of the puzzle, don't, don't you think? 1,000%. Let's, let's go back and create a scenario that actually has happened in the past. I, I remember, and I was called in on, on a particular issue with, with a ball player um, in high school. And this is, I'm located in Orlando, Florida. So this happened with, with a really good ball player. And the strength and conditioning coach, and in high schools, many times the strength and conditioning coach is the pitching, uh, the baseball coach uh, or a football coach. Right. So they're, they're building these programs around power lifting. And just that exact thing that you described the, the kid was having difficulty in the catch phase of the power clean and his knee was going valgus. His hips were, were being unstable. Uh, he, he would list to one side. If I recall, he listed to the left and he just, he was just not being stable through this. Well, the kid over time developed a little bit of back pain, went to the doc, was referred to me and the doc was looking at the symptom of the back pain. The coach was looking at the fact that, okay, you're not staying centered. You're not being stable. Your hips aren't doing what, it's do, what it, they're supposed to do in the catch, and your knee is diving in. The kid was referred to me, and he was, by the way, a pitcher. Um, I did an evaluation, and he didn't have adequate ankle dorsiflexion. And for those that might not know what that is, when you go into a squat or let's look at it from a pitching standpoint, that when you're loaded or when you follow through, that knee, so to speak, while the foot is but the knee, think of it of just as the ankle flexes forward into ankle dorsiflexion, the kid wasn't able to do that as well on the left side as he was on the right. So if any of you, any of your, your listeners, have them, get, have them stand up right now and imagine that they don't have good motion in that ankle when they go through a squat. Let's just use that as an example right now. Because in the catch phase, when they catch, they're going to have to go into somewhat of a squat anyway. So now you've got a ball player, or if your listeners are up standing up, they can't dorsiflex through their ankle very well on the right side, but they've got adequate dorsiflexion on the left. Go ahead and squat you're going to see that the hips are going to drift or list over to the left side. So now if that's happening in the, in the catch phase of, of, the, of the power clean, um, let's step back and figure out why. Because the site of the injury, in this case was this kid's back, the site of the injury is not the problem. It's typically a joint level above or below, or maybe two levels above or below that become limited in motion and the compensation is going to occur. You talk about the knee going valgus, the knee's the dumbest joint in the body and is going to do what the foot and hip tell it to do. So the knee's going to try and find this base of support for the system. The ankle wasn't doing what it's supposed to do because it isn't just ankle dorsiflexion. The tibia is going to turn in. It's going to internally rotate, which is going to create internal rotation of the knee, which is okay if the athlete can control that. If they can't control it, they can't control it, and they can't get out of it, that's where I'm really concerned of why they can't control that. Mm -hmm. But if under normal healthy conditions, they go in a little bit and then cleanly come out, it's okay if everything else is functioning properly. In this case, this kid's ankle wasn't. Now let's transfer that over to pitching. 
When you get this kid, he's right-handed pitcher. This is the right ankle we're talking about. As he goes into his drive phase, he needs to get through that balance point and then drive. There's going to be a degree of internal of, of ankle dorsiflexion, which is going to allow the tibia to internally rotate. But if that kid can't load that properly and he can't go through ankle dorsiflexion, the knee often makes up the difference and goes into an extreme valgus moment. One, they're losing, they're losing power because now the foot and ankle isn't doing what it's supposed to do to allow the glute to optimally load. So the kid's going to make up the difference by drifting off the mound, by driving a bit early. Now you're creating a suboptimal power development. The arm often lags in this point, and that's where we start to see other issues start to occur. So just because this kid looked like he couldn't stabilize the catch phase and it was ugly, let's step back and figure out why. When we look at this from the lift and now translate it into throwing and the, the um, cocking phase, there's a correlation there. And that's what happened with this kid, and I've seen this over and over again. Yeah, because the body is going to function – the dysfunction in the body is going to manifest itself in any skill you do. It just it looks different because the skill is moving different, but this the dysfunction is the same. Movement is movement, no matter how you look at it, uh, Brent. Movement's movement, and then you apply it to the specificity of the sport. You know, in in my book, I look I talk about the the action pyramid, and uh, the foundation is there's four layers to it. The foundation is function. You have to have good function first. And the function being what's going on to me, at least in my mind, what's going on in the big movement rocks on all three planes of motion. Once you have function, then you start working on the strength and the conditioning, whatever that may be. Let it be if it's muscle endurance, then into explosiveness, or or muscle endurance, then into strength, then into the explosiveness phase. That's all part of fitness. Cardiovascular falls into the same thing. The next level above that is what's going on with your Uh, drills and technique work you need to work on that and then the very top of that pyramid is your skill those are the things if we don't have the foundations under each level secure and and good sound foundational movements everything's going to fall apart and eventually there's going to be a breakdown yeah i I mean i love that analogy And, and let's go back to the kid in high school so you come in you apply the foundation, you, you help him understand how his foundation isn't there, and that's what's causing the technical issues, the, the skill issues, the performance issues, or the pain. Well, and that's what he needs. But if that coach hears about you and then goes, ah, I don't want this disrupting my expertise or, or my uh, you know authority over this kid, and then y'all start pushing back and forth once again that's the problem here that's where the break happens in this player development chain um because it needs to lay out to where you you have incredible valuable value to the athlete just talking about your pyramid like you're laying that foundation of the pyramid and that's that that coach maybe that technical coach is is above that and then that you know that pitching coach or skills coach is above that the problem is is you i think when you're looking from the bottom up like you are you can see it all you see how it all works, and you can easily work with these other coaches. The problem is the ones at the top, they can't see it down. It's kind of like, you know, when you buy a, you know, you, you have your car, and you drive your car every day, and it breaks, and you don't know how a car works, and you go to a mechanic, and they start telling you it costs all this money, and then you get all pissed off. 
Well, that mechanic might be going, man, I'm giving them a good deal. But because the driver, the guy who owns the car, has no idea how the car works, he just hears the, the price point that he doesn't like. He gets all upset, and it creates this tension. So it's I, I, the problem is I feel like in, in how this needs to work, specifically in these baseball organizations who are failing at this, I feel like does, don't you think even the skill coaches have to have a good education of functional movement, of kinesiology, of biomechanics, uh, if they're really going to be a part of this, this, this healthy player development process? It all comes down to one word, and that's communication. When a ball player is referred to me, let it be if it's from the doc or if it's from a coach, I make sure that it is critically important that there's communication with the coaches and the rationale of why. And what I also provide is here's here's what I suggest you do. Here's the progression that we we follow. And here's the rationale of why I'm suggesting this progression. And here's an exercise I may not want this particular ball player to do for these reasons. And very seldom have I ever gotten any resistance because I'm including that. The, the thing I don't – I'm including the coach in on this. The thing I don't want to do, Brent, and I really strive not to do, is be a wedge between the player and the coach. Right. I don't want to interfere with that relationship. Where you really see this is in golf because the golf – the golfer and his coach – or her coach, have a very close relationship and a very close trust with them. I don't want to be a wedge there. So any communication I have, there's going to be a change in technique. It goes through the coach. If there's a, an issue with a pitcher and I'm seeing that there's a throwing fault, I'm going to the coach to provide the rationale of why. And I've got the statistics to back it up. I don't want to put the coach in a position that is going to question the athlete's um, or the, the athlete is going to question the coach's viewpoint or question the coach's techniques in the past because now all of a sudden there's been a doubt that's been brought about. So I want to I want to include the coach, particularly if the coach has been the one to refer to me. Um, that that must take place. Otherwise, I've set everybody up for failure: the coach, the player, and me. And I don't want that to happen. When I get a referral from a physician where there's a kid who's got some issue going on. He, let's say he's been, he's been injured, goes to the doc, the doc refers to me. My communication of, what's, of what I see and why this injury occurred first goes back to the physician. Then I get the ball player's permission to speak with the coach about here's the limitations, compensations, and idiosyncrasies your player has done based on some of the throwing techniques, if that is an issue, and there's a throwing fault involved. Here's what I'm seeing and why. And I provide that through video analysis. And I get the coach to understand what I'm seeing from a biomechanical standpoint and, have, and how that has transferred to, to um, increased forces that have created a breakdown of tissue. And when I do it that way, I've been fortunate enough that I get the buy-in and now we're all on the same team. But I don't want to put anybody, if I can at all help it, I don't want to put anybody down. I don't want to create doubt in the ball player's mind. Now, there have been, especially at the high school level, there's been a lot of coaches who don't know squat. <laughs> I don't mean that literally, but don't know anything 
about biomechanics, about movement, and really don't know anything about strength and conditioning, let alone they don't know a whole lot about pitching other than let's see how, how hard we can get this ball player to throw. Right. We've got a problem with that. If those coaches aren't going to be open and receptive to learning, then that coach shouldn't be coaching because he's not there to help the kid. Yeah, and I think that was it. I mean, that nailed it perfectly. And I think what needs to be encouraged is the, those coaches, no matter who you are, if you're a skills coach, a pitching coach, you know, you know what? obviously coaching a sport, you, you really do need to read and learn from guys like, you know, like you, Chuck, and, and, and get in. And that's why I want to get into your book now, because I think they need your, your understanding of function and, and of movement. Um, because that's the only way that, you, you know, if you're ever, you know, recommended to one of their athletes for purposes of um, injury or lack of performance, it, it's only going to help you all work together. And if, and if they're not willing to learn and educate themselves, I think, unfortunately, they're going to separate themselves to what is actually evolving in this game. And what I see is evolving is the movement specialists are becoming more valuable to the young player than the than the coaches. So the coaches are starting to lose their kind of um, their kind of respect, unfortunately, in the game uh, because the 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 game is evolving, and these young kids want more information, want more understanding of the body, and these coaches aren't giving it to them. So now they're starting to separate themselves. They're starting to lose uh, their 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 influence. And then there's, and we're starting to fight more between the special, the movement specialists and these the skill coaches. And it really needs to be everyone doing a better job of educating themselves and helping the player. So I, I, I want to get into your book and, and what these coaches really need to learn. And, and this is not just for coaches, right? This, this, I know it's probably pretty advanced, but don't you think that a, you know, a kid in high school, if he wants to understand, you know, this better, that he could even pick this book up? Or, or what would you say about that? Uh, Brent, if I can go back to a comment you just made before we get into the book, um, and, and you're talking about the coaches that don't seem open and willing to work with the movement specialist. Um, there's a problem there. I think the coach is probably a bit insecure himself and doesn't want to, doesn't want to be open and learn. The thing, when I work with ball players, if they if they have a pitching coach that they're working with, or if they're already working with a high school or college coach, I tell the kid, look, I'm not here to teach you or coach you through pitching strategies. That's not my role. I don't want to do that. Even though, yeah, we can talk about it, but I'm not there as your pitching coach. I'm not going to tell you necessarily to change your grip on a cutter or, or a, a slider curveball or do a two-seam, four-seam. That's your pitching coach. I want that pitching coach to understand I'm here to enhance what this, what you're trying to teach your ball player and what you're or trying to coach your ball player and what the ball player is trying to establish. If there's a reason that his breaking pitch is flat, let's figure that out. Don't just say, well, get over the top because if anything, the ball player wants to work at the highest level, not only for themselves, but to please their coach. And if they keep saying, well, or they keep hearing from the coach, you're getting underneath it or you're, you're, you're wrapping around it and you're not staying on top. There's a reason why. There's a limitation in this ballplayer's body that doesn't allow him or her to be able to reach over the top and stay on top of that pitch or to stay behind their throw. And we have to figure that out. So if I can 
if I can convey that to the coach and say, look, I'm not going to change anything. I'm just going to enhance the movement so your ball player will do what you want them to do. We're working together on the same side of the table. We're working on the same page. Uh, it's not to say, look, you're teaching him to grip the ball you know, with two seam. I'm telling him to put more pressure on, on a certain part of his finger and change the grip. I don't want to do that. If the kid doesn't have a coach, then I'll step in and help and assist with that. But I'm there to try and enhance the movements of the ball player to reinforce what the coach is telling him. And guess who works? And if that happens, the ball player performs well. The coach looks better in the ball player's eyes and you know the organization's eyes because the kid's doing what the coach is do is is requesting, and the progress and the results are there. And I sit back and just say, hey, I'm just helping you facilitate through movement and where your limitations have been. So now if we clear up those limitations, you're getting the performance that you both want. And you're nailing it. The, the problem is, is I'm, I'm on the other side trying to deal with these coaches. You're, you're, you're laying the foundation for what's coming. So you're, you're the the evolution of, of this game. It's been going for a while. You're probably one of the original, you know, the, the, the ones that are, you know, that have pushed this and, and put this into action. But I'm just, I'm on the other side telling these, I'm really reaching out to these coaches and I've done this for a while is if these coaches don't want to understand what you're doing and what's happening in, in the evolution of sport and the skill coaches want to, you know, want to push back or don't want to educate themselves they're only going to become you're 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 going to be a dinosaur you're pushing yourself into extinction really quickly when right. i'm advising those coaches to start learning from guys like you because i you have the perfect you have the right perspective because you know what's happening they don't and like you said it's insecurity they're scared but the problem is is they just don't want to learn and educate and you can't do that today there's the internet has created a uh, you know, a, an explosion of information. And if, if, if everyone uh, that, that's kind of been in an industry from years past is, and is still kind of evolving in that same old way, if they don't understand that they need to learn and, 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 and catch up with what's going on, they're going to be left behind. So I just want those coaches to know they need to learn from guys like you or just move on because unfortunately I think that's what's happening. Well, hopefully they'll get on board at some point. <laughs> and I don't want to slow this train down because we have a lot to do here. So th that's why I'm, that's why I'm pushing that. But so who like who is this book for? Like, and I know you're not in here just to, to plug this book, but I want to get into your book, Insights into Functional Training. Who's this book for? Is it for everybody, or is it for a specific group? This is really targeted for um, the fitness industry physical therapy, strength and conditioning coaches, chiropractors, uh, and I, I've had physicians who have read it. I mean, obviously you see a forward by Dr. Masan and he's read it. Uh, uh, movement specialists, massage therapists. So it's more on towards the professional in, let's say, the healthcare and, and um, allied healthcare industries. Now, is that to say that as you put it, for the everyday individual, and not say everyday, meaning people who don't deal with these concepts on a daily basis, um, they could definitely read it, but it is a, a bit more advanced. Right. Do you have any 
But I try, I try to break it down in, in an application that people will let it be if, you've, if you are in the industries or if you're not, that you can understand something and, and be able to come away with the information from it. Yeah, and you know, in kids today taking a biology class in high school, I think they're starting to delve into this type of information, don't you, don't you believe? They're slowly doing it. The thing is, and definitely in anatomy physiology, definitely in kinesiology, but the way 95 to 99% of the books define movement, especially kinesiology and anatomy, they look at the body in one plane of motion. They look at it as concentric contraction, which is, which is by definition, according to the book, is muscle contraction as it shortens, but it doesn't go into the detail that it's, that it's acceleration, that it's shortening and pro- of tissue, that it's propulsion of tissue, uh, the propulsion of action and, and movement, um, that is the concentric phase. That opens up a whole new aspect of how you look at what concentric contraction is. Uh, so it's one plane of motion, it's isolated concentric contraction in most books. When in fact the body moves in three planes of motion, you first have to decelerate an action, stabilize, and then accelerate. And deceleration, uh, absorption of forces, lengthening, loading the tissue, that's all eccentric contraction, which is as the muscle contracts, the tissue lengthens, according to the tradi- you know, most books, the traditional way of looking at eccentric contraction. But it does a whole lot more. And yeah. if you can harness and understand eccentric contraction, because it's really a passive reaction, it's how the body, it, Brent, if we're walking down the street and I just accidentally push you, you're not going to think in isolation terms of stopping yourself from falling. The muscles are going to react and contract because in certain parts of in the, most of the muscles or the myofascial tissue in your body is going to reactively lengthen to decelerate motion and control it. That's what people don't understand is that it's not, a conscious reaction, but it's a passive reaction that we have to harness and create an environment for that to happen. And that's kind of the strategies of what goes on in this book. Yeah. And I, and I might advise at this point, because we might start getting more advanced, those who would like a more basic foundation of this information and probably be getting something like biomechanics for dummies or even, uh, anatomy for dummies. Don't you think that'd probably be a good place to start before they really maybe delve into all this information? Uh, that's going to be in its in its basic foundation, uh, but it's yeah, it's not. You're right. This it's is not going to be anything is, with, with this book will will right. do. But they still, but like you said, you're, we're using principles like eccentric, concentric, isometric, planes of movement. They they still need an understanding of what all that is, right? No question, no question. And and that's brought out in this book. I mean, when I discuss it, I definitely go into the fact that. Here's what the traditional concepts have been. Uh, here's where the limitations are with those traditional concepts and contrasted to what goes on in three planes of motion and integrated movement. So even if let – me, let me give you a case in point. I worked with a patient who found me on the internet. She's from Kansas and uh, had significant pain in her arm, in her shoulder, in her arm, numbness down her arm into her hand, and, and called me. I said, well, you know, it sounds like you've got, you might have some cervical spine problems. She 
came to Orlando, worked with me for a bit. I did an evaluation and I said, you really need to have a, a consultation with Dr. Masan, who's a neurosurgeon. He, There are neurosurgeons that come from all over the world to learn from this gentleman. He is just remarkable at what he does. Um, ended up, she needed a three-level artificial disc replacement. Wow. So during this time, though, she bought my book and has bookmarked everything because she sees that the exercises and the movement patterns that we did are in the book, and now she understands how to use them, and she's – this is somebody who – she's in academia, but not in this field at all. And uh, so she, she is somebody who is not in the allied health profession but understands what's going on through the book. So I think it's written in a way that people will understand. Well, that's good. And, and I think, too, I think, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'd like guys to go into learning from you with uh, this understanding. We're getting rid of the misconception that the human body is not always going to create or find the best movement for itself. Like people, I don't think even young kids understand your body isn't as perfect as you think. It's an amazing thing. And it, it, really, it, has, it has greater purposes than being perfect. But it's not a perfect machine, and there's such thing as pathomechanics, meaning mechanics that lead to injury. Like your body will unfortunately go ways that are going to ruin it. And 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 also too, I even believe that with a lot of autoimmune diseases, your body overreacts, it overprotects, and it actually can hurt itself in the process. So there is a definite reason to learn this level of information if you want to truly, truly optimize your body and reach your potential because, unfortunately, it's just not going to always happen naturally. You're hitting on something that is so true. In fact, you, you opened up a, a bunch of topics right there, Brent, in, in that statement. First of all, especially because your, your podcast and your website is directed more towards the athletic population, athletes are the greatest compensators. You know, they're driven, but they'll find ways to be able to work around a particular limitation that they have, and they may not, may not even be aware of it. Uh, so that's where I see the performance may be uh, at a very high level. It doesn't mean the quality of movement is because they're working their way around it. And people in general are pretty much the same way. But what's also interesting is that when we start getting some tissue breakdown, we start this cycle of inflammation. And that can become not just at the local level, but then permeate systemically through the body and you hit on autoimmune issues. And there's something, let it be if it was from movement, let it be if it was from a chemical imbalance, let it be if it's from a psychological imbalance um, that may create this constant cycle of inflammation that leads to autoimmune disorders. That's where this becomes extremely daunting, extremely complex, and there's methods today and technology today and um, just research that so many people are starting that is that is not mainstream but is so interesting and makes so much sense that the body is nothing more than an integrated circuitry. Uh, that is, to me, more amazing than the, than the computer because the body will adapt, let it be if it's in a positive way or possibly a negative way. Yeah, I think that's the brilliance of the body is, unfortunately, nothing 
you know, the laws of thermodynamics basically say that really nothing works perfectly. You know, you pay the price on everything and you're always paying the price, but that's the brilliance of the body in this kind of, you know, rogue system of life, you know, you have a body that can survive it, which is amazing. But the thing is, is those who survive better or potentially reach higher levels of physical abilities, um, of course, DNA is a big part of that. But those that can understand how the body functions best, um, therefore, it will, therefore, you'll take more advantage of its ability to adapt because it'll adapt, it'll adapt with a better focus, uh, with with a a, a better um, uh, you know a more laser driven um, uh, approach. So, but that's the thing. It's like, and and the one thing I don't think the younger athletes are going to understand, but I think the older athletes really understand that that I that there's a lot you need to learn to really in the short amount of time you play a game to really get the most out of your body. And a lot of the younger kids don't understand that. So they're taking it for granted because they think everything's working great because their tissue is so fresh and young. It, it, they haven't, they, they haven't had the opportunity to experience what real pain is, what real, uh, you know, diseases or, or pathomechanics, how, how they can destroy a body. So what do you do? Like, what do you do in your expertise to really, how do you educate these kids on, you know, how all this works when, when they're probably not feeling it or even experiencing it? Well, it's, it's interesting how you kind of integrating all this together because you talk about the younger kids where the tissue uh, and the collagen, which makes up the, the fibers of the, of the fascia and the fibers of the muscle tissue uh, and the connective tissue, when they're young, that young collagen is just coming, it's, it's transforming from reticulin, which is young immature collagen, which is the structures that make up the fascia and the connective tissue. That's very resilient. It's very pliable. Why is it that you can take an infant and, and grab them by their ankles and put their feet over their head and all they do is is laugh and have a good time, but you do it to me or to you, you know, we're going to grimace a little bit and not be as pliable. Well, because there's a change in as we get older that collagen becomes a little stiffer when we get into our daily activities, either repetitive patterns such as throwing or uh, if people who, who sit a lot uh, or there's been an injury that limits motion, this collagen now becomes a little stiffer and the tissues, uh, the fluids within the tissues is very sticky and causes the fibers to stick and we don't move quite as well. So it comes down to what do you do when the tissue is young, when the tissue is very pliable and resilient versus older when it gets older uh, less resistant, less resilient, or let's look at it this way. You've got a pitcher who has thankfully been pretty healthy from Little League up to college or minor league ball, and if he's lucky enough to get to the major leagues, and in his 20s or 30s suffers an injury. Am I going to change that pitcher's mechanics like I would a younger ball player? And the answer is no. The reason being is, the younger tissue is very resilient, it's very moldable, it's very pliable, but as we get older and there's been that repetitive movement over and over again, the tissue has remodeled itself to create 
limitations, but is more efficient through the patterns that they've established over the course of years. The older the ball player is, now you start to even see some bony changes. We don't necessarily want to go making household changes or wholesale changes, I should say, because their bodies aren't going to be efficient and they're going to have, there's a greater risk of tissue breakdown somewhere else if you go make those wholesale changes. So that's when we have to regress and step back and say, okay, how have you been moving? What is limited in motion? And why did this injury occur? Part of it might be throwing mechanics, where there's, for instance, with the UCL injury, that's the hot topic these days in, in baseball at every level, is, is there too much time under tension? Is it a throwing delivery issue? Yeah, there might be that the throwing mechanics fall into the six throwing faults that I've identified, but that's increasing the time under tension on the UCL. But what's going on in the body that maybe is causing that to happen? And what I often see is a limitation in the opposite hip of their throwing arm that is limited in motion that's less than 30 degrees of internal rotation. Why is it that that's happening? Well, there might be something going on at the foot and ankle, or there might be something going on in the opposite hip that's causing this to happen. So when that occurs, what I've been seeing in about 68% of the ballplayers that I've evaluated with elbow injuries, I'm not going to say surgery, but injuries, there's been a limitation in that opposite hip, and we better address that because there's a chain reaction and there's a correlation of opposite hip internal rotation to the opposite shoulder internal rotation. So if that landing leg has a tight hip, that throwing arm and that throwing shoulder is going to have to compensate and go into internal rotation further and faster than it really is designed to. And over time, tissue is going to break down. Right. And, and, and this could have been going on for years. Like they, exactly. they could have been compensating for years, you know? And, and so that's the, a lot of the challenges is when they, sometimes when the pain shows up or the injury shows up, that's way down at the end of the road. Yeah. The horse has already left the, already left the corral when you have the pain. Yeah. So it's like these, because the young athlete doesn't understand that they think it might've been something they've been doing for the past week. So they think the fix is going to be within a week. And they don't understand if it's something they've been doing since they were a kid, the fix could be almost just as long or at least half, half that time, you know, which could be a good year or two just to get out of those bad patterns. No question about it. And the question now falls into, okay, what caused those bad patterns? I will guarantee you nearly 100% of the time there's going to be a limitation somewhere else in the body. The tough ones for me, Brent, are when I get, especially a young kid who's very mobile and all all the big movement rocks, is very mobile and has con has difficulty controlling those motions, and that's when we'll start to see injury as well. So now, where typically we have to mobilize something that's limited in motion, I've got to regress these this particular type of athlete and say, no, we've got to get you stronger first because you're too mobile. And you can't control the movements. Right. That's where movement assessment comes into play. Right. I just and and it's just it's a long it, it's a it's a it, the, these are approaches or understandings that are mapped out over time because we're looking at everything's like layers of an onion. Like we might be we might peel or say say we're at a we're we're working on a part of the onion here, but we need to peel it back two or three layers to get to the real source. 
it's all, that's a matter of time. And, and, and I think the challenge is, is a lot of the kids, because they don't understand this, they want everything to happen so quickly. And they don't understand a lot of the things that you're caught in have been layered over and layered over and layered over and layered over for years. And that's what's put you where you are. And it's not going to be an easy fix. 100% correct. I mean, I think it's, I don't care who the case is before I even see them. I, I want them to understand that. Like you don't do not go into any injury or any issue you're having in a sport or in a skill with this is something I'm going to fix in a few days because you're just only going to set yourself up for failure. And what's also interesting to me anyway is that the, the athlete, if it's a young athlete, the parents and, and the coaches have to realize that these overuse injuries, the site of the injury is not the problem. So we may be doing certain movement patterns that have nothing to do or at least look like uh, throwing or pitching or hitting a baseball. But we better fix that particular link that has created the limitation. And I'm sorry, that is limited, that has created the compensation. And that's where the injury occurs. So that's where it comes back to what you just said. It's like the layers of an onion. You've got to peel it back first and understand what's going on with the foundational primal movement patterns. That comes back to the big movement rocks, so the foot, ankle complex, hips, and thoracic spine. And there's certain movements within each of those that you need to develop an appreciation for to create an environment for success in movement. Yeah, and you can even look at it like a, in a house analogy. Like if you didn't build a good foundation – and now your, you know, your your roof is 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 leaning the wrong way, and you know, not blocking the rain. You can't just change the roof. You might have to go back and and rebuild the foundation. And to be true, to be honest, I think that's the majority of the cases. I agree with you. And you know, I I can't help but hearing always hear this in my voice. I interviewed Jim Morris from the movie The Rookie. You remember that movie? Oh yeah. He said, he, you know, they don't tell us in the movie, which makes no sense, but he had nine arm surgeries. They took out 80% of his deltoid. And the, Dr. Joe, I think it was Dr. Joe, he, I know Dr. Joe worked on him a few times, but he said after his, I think his, you know, uh, sixth or seventh arm surgery, the doctor said, Jim, all the damage you did to your arm happened before you were 15 years old. And I, I truly believe that. I, I believe that a lot of the wear and tear that is at the, where the inflammation is out of control and we're in pain is a, it's an old injury in most cases. Don't you believe? In many cases, that is that is very true. The unfortunate thing is, especially for ball players from earlier eras, is um, the approach was okay. It's injured. Let's just fit quote, fix the injured site. Right. And and the docs are, are good at dealing with fixing the injured site, but don't understand the etiology of the possibilities of why. Back then, docs are starting to get an idea of it now. Um, but we better step back and, and think of think of the why. And it all comes back to why. When when somebody comes forward with a knee or an elbow or a shoulder problem and says, I've got an injured knee, step back and say, why? Because the injury itself is a what? Yeah. The when and how is 
how we're going to fix it, when we're going to do certain things at certain times. But if you don't address, if you only address the what, when, and how, you're not going to get to the source of the problem. And that's the why. Right, and 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 that's why the. the that's why the more we learn about ourselves through time, the more our understanding dramatically changes and our approach changes. Things we used a hundred years ago, we're not using anymore because we realized it was ridiculous. You know, it's like, I like watching these old TV shows and, you know, they always say when people get sick, oh, you got the fever or you got the sugar disease, which was diabetes, because that's, that's how they understood it. They just understood it as the symptom but not as the source. And there's a still a lot of that going on today, specifically in player development. We are addressing just the symptom and not the source. And that was what is going to change and has to change over the time. And that's what I'm saying to coaches that are, are stubborn and don't want to learn really what's going on are the ones that are going to get left behind. No question about it. No question about it. And, and some of them I think are starting to realize it. Yeah. And, you know, and so let's let's end it with your book here. So peeling back layers of the or I would say learning how the layers of the onion build and work I th would be really getting into your book. Your book's really going to help you understand the foundation and how the layers of, you know, health and function, player development are, are built, wouldn't you say? Um, the purpose of, of and the purpose of the book and the uh, sequencing of the book goes from just discussing the principles and concepts of movement and you know what whatever that whatever function means i call it the f word of, of the yeah. movement industry these days but whatever that means but trying to at least apply a a construct to it so they understand what the principles which are the truths the concepts which is you know the tendencies and and the applications uh, are the techniques of how we can put this together. Then it goes on into understanding the three-dimensional joint-by-joint approach. I mean, I literally have a discussion of what goes on at the foot and ankle and how that's going to affect the hip and how the knee is affected by those and then and travel up to the cervical spine. Um, there's a chapter in there that uh, is, is one of my favorite, to be honest with you, because my publisher – this, this is on functional anatomy. It's the third chapter, and my publisher printed this in color, glossy pages. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And we got the permission from um, uh, Dr. Mark Nielsen at University of, of Utah, who's an outstanding anatomist, uh, physiologist, and specializes in movement, and he let us use many of the dissection photos and it just came out beautifully. And that's where we I, I discussed the three phases of myofascial function, uh, deceleration, stabilize, acceleration, and all three planes of motion. Uh, then we work around joints. Then I talk about integrated flexibility. Um, I look at movement and flexibility is all integrated, what I call the flexibility highways, which I established back in 2002. And it's dependent upon... If there's a limitation somewhere, it's going to impact movement somewhere else, and that's all. That's all predicated by what goes on at the fascial system. And case in point: if you have, a, let's take a pitcher who might have a tight inner thigh or the tight adductor, uh, and he drives towards 
towards home plate. Let's take a right-handed pitcher. He drives towards home plate, but that adductor is is tight. That's going to cause his heel on his right side to come up early and to spin out. So he's not getting the drive towards the plate. But what also is happening, it's going to limit his ability to internally rotate. It's also going to cause his foot to lift up earlier. Now there's all kinds of energy leaks going on. So this is all predicated on what's going on within the fascial system. And that's what flexibility highway talk, flexibility highways talks about. Then I talk about the big movement rocks and just the principles of getting this foot and ankle complex, the hips, thoracic spine mobile. And then we go into programming and functional assessment, and at least how I look at things and how I assess it. And, um, don't necessarily go into sports issues per se, but I go into special populations and I, I limited it to uh, the back, the knee, and the shoulder and the injuries that I uh, – or the issues that I see with those injuries. The only reason I limited it to that is because those are the top three that we typically see, top three that uh, ball players typically suffer from. Uh, otherwise, there would be an entire book written – on, on just injury and special population. Um, and then insights. This book was developed and the title came from my Facebook page where for about a four year period, I would post an inside of the week, just things that I see in the trenches that you're not seeing in the, in, in books, but it's what I see in the trenches and certain trends that I see that are reproducible. What I've found through evaluation, if somebody had, let's say, a back problem or a shoulder problem, here are the things I would see over and over again, and those would be kind of aha moments for me. Uh, so insights to functional training is what that was entitled, or the insight of the week, and that's what led to the title of this book. Um, this book is really a culmination of working with a lot of great docs and other strength and conditioning coaches and physios and other trainers. and. Again, my experience is over 39 years, and it's out there to be a usable textbook uh, or reference book that you can look at from either the beginning of Chapter 1 or just dive into Chapter 7 and just look something up. But it's uh, hopefully it's being a contribution to not only rehab but fitness and sports performance and hopefully some medical issues that people can at least get a little bit of insight from and then explore from there. So it's called Insights into Functional Training, Principles, Concepts, and Application. And Correct. I'm actually excited to read it. I wish I would have read it before, but there's a lot here. Um, and, you know, I, I stayed on the surface just because I think when I talk to guys like you that are very um, intelligent and, and very much um, uh, a book, a, a library of information – I get scared that I'm going to lose my whole audience if you and I just start nerding out, right? So, I understand that. So I've kept it simple, and, 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 and I've kept the focus and the reason, I hope, in this podcast for why every player or coach, ideally, or professional in, 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 in baseball or in any sport industry should really um, want to read and learn from you. So um, uh, you want to tell them how they can find you besides finding the book? Uh, they can go to my website, which is www.humanmotionassociates.com. Um, also my Facebook page. And, uh, because I'm, you know, I feel like at times I'm this 
this old guy. I'm just starting to emerge uh, in Instagram and have to start building that up. But uh, uh, the best way is either through uh, probably my website on humanmotionassociates.com. And if people are kind enough to send an email or an inquiry, I will get back to them. And um, if we have more time in the future, maybe we can get in and and get really get into biomechanics and stuff. But I mean, just just hearing you break down the delivery and, and you're looking down the chain. I mean, I, I, that's why I'm excited to read this. I mean, we I think we have identical understandings of the, the you know, any type of uh, biomechanical movement, specifically pitching. So um, I think we'd just be preaching to the choir to each other. So I, like I said, I, and I, I think there's a ton I, I need to learn from you. So I'm excited. Um, but I hope I didn't sell you short. I think uh, I think we got a lot of stuff in. Anything that you'd like to add to it that we missed? Uh, again, what I what I just think that players and coaches need to understand is, to me, pitching starts from the ground up, and uh, I'm going to see what's going on with foot function because if that's in contact with the ground. You've got to generate the force from the ground. Uh, but being triplane loading, you better have the mobility, but yet the stability to control all that and how our body reacts. And throwing is a very complex movement. Just doing, just throwing isn't going to make somebody better. We better understand how we're moving. Uh, when I hear of ball players, especially the young ball players that are playing on multiple teams and playing all year round, uh, I've got a real problem with that, especially young kids, because I think they should do multiple sports to get that uh, movement variability. There's plenty of studies out there. I have seen over 39 years that when I work with athletes that have played multiple sports, their movement, quality of movement, is much better than anybody who specializes. And these kids that may have, or these ball players that have injury, don't think throwing is going to just make it make you stronger, make you better. Because if something isn't working right, something's going to break down elsewhere, and we we have to figure that out. It's like Brent, if if you came to me and said, you know, every time that you hit a nail into the wall with a hammer, you slam your thumb, and I'm not going to tell you, Brent, hit fewer nails. We have to figure out how you're doing it. And like pitch count is, I think pitch count's important. I have a number of ball players. Right now I'm working with at least six ball players I can think of that have had either elbow or shoulder problems that have been referred to me for a throwing reconditioning program. And they're going through a lot of preparatory uh, foundational movements because we have to clean that up. As I tell them the same thing about the hammer and the nail. Don't just throw with bad mechanics because otherwise your injury is going to come back. We have to figure out not only what you're limited in motion, but then clean up the mechanics. And that's where this becomes fun. And my passion with all this and my studies six years ago, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, four and a half years ago on UCL injuries, how that came about, uh, maybe we can talk about this another day, but uh, how that came about in one day, I had three referrals from three different docs. I had a middle school, high school, and a college player all come to me with UCL injuries and they were getting into a throwing reconditioning program. And when I saw the tendencies of these kids and when I did hip mobility tests on these kids, 
All three of them were less than 30 degrees of internal hip rotation. Then I went back, or I thought, is this coincidental? And I went back at that time, I had 23 files of various levels of ball players from Little League uh, to Major League, 23 files that had elbow injury, tw- I'm sorry, 24 files that had elbow injuries, 23 of them had less than 30 degrees of internal hip rotation on their opposite hip of their throwing arm. That's not a coincidence anymore. And then we've been studying what goes on from there and I'm finding this to be very reproducible, very consistent, and then we look at throwing faults. So it comes back down to movement and communicating that movement not only to the player but to the parent and to the coach, and that's my mission. Okay, so what we're going to do, I think this is going to end it well. We're all going to read the book. I'm going to read the book, and then you and I are going to get back on again and then really get into the details here. How, how, how would that work? That sounds great to me, Paul. I'd love the opportunity to talk to you further about it. Okay. All right, well, we're going to end it. Thank you so much, and um, hang on the line, and we'll do this again. Brent, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk with you today.